Because no two investors are the same, one size doesn't fit all. There's more to it. At S&P Dow Jones Indices, we offer index strategies for all types of investments. Comprehensive ESG solutions, core retirement strategies, multi-asset diversification, and new ways of thinking about risk management and income. They're all in one place. Express your investment views and give yourself the freedom to go anywhere with S&P Dow Jones Indices. Search Indexology on the web or hashtag Indexology on Twitter and LinkedIn. My mission is simple, to make you money. I'm here to level the playing field for all investors. There's always a bull market somewhere, and I promise to help you find it. Mad Money starts now. Hey, I'm Kramer. Welcome to Mad Money. Welcome to Kramer. I'll be one of my friends. I just want to try to make some money. It's my job to not just entertain, but to educate and teach you. So call me at 1-800-743-CNBC or tweet me at Jim Kramer. I know it sounds strange, but the stock market's having a real hard time evaluating anything, anything at all, and putting a dollar amount on it. Every day this plays out, including today, Dow lost 75 points, S&P declined 0.2%, NASDAQ dipped 0.02%. You know what? It's driving me crazy. For example, this morning, our market opened down badly because the Japanese and European markets were dramatically lower. The house of pain. Makes sense. Huh? Not in the least. Japan and Europe are dominated by the automakers. Last night, President Trump announced he's considering throwing a tariff on automotive imports from Japan and Europe, perhaps as high as 25%. That's terrible for their car companies, and it translates into some serious pain for their stock markets. But is it painful for us? Now, it's true it could be inflationary. However, at the same time, it also helps out our automakers, Ford and GM. So how is it possible we could open down almost as much as Europe and Japan when it's a zero-sum situation? Their car companies lose, ours win! Sure enough, buyers come in snapping up stocks that were marked down incorrectly by what I call the copycat traders, who are almost as bad as the pajama traders who trade overnight in their jammies. You don't sell our market just because their markets are falling. Ever since Donald Trump was elected president, it has made little sense to do so, given how antagonistic he is to our partners. Of course, no sooner do we start to bounce than we learn that President Trump is canceling the summit with North Korea. Not long ago, many of us were talking about the prospect of the president winning the Nobel Peace Prize for these talks. Now he's back to being confrontational. Suddenly, the whole market gets hit. Maybe based on worries that a nuclear war just got a tiny bit more likely, so the Dow swiftly loses more than 250 points. Once again, though, the sellers come to their senses, perhaps recognizing that unlike, unlike Billy in The Predator, we're not all going to die. People take advantage of the weakness to do some buying, and we end up bouncing off the lows, and almost going back to even. How does all this play out on individual stocks, you say or might ask? Okay, the other day we had Micron, not the guy from France, the stock, Micron CEO, Sanjay Marotra, on the show right here in person. And he told one of the best stories I've heard in ages, and I've been doing this show for ages. He plans to buy back 15% of the company because he's convinced that Micron stock is incredibly undervalued. I get it. The stock sells for a little more than 5 times earnings. It's a buy, buy, buy. And ever since Micron told us about this buyback earlier in the week, 
After pre-announcing sharply higher than expected numbers, the stock has been on a roll. That is until this morning when Micron starts going down from the get-go. It got hit on the auto tariffs, then it bounced, then it got murdered by the Korean breakdown for taking off and then ultimately closing up 2.5%. Talking about a roller coaster. Micron's value correctly, then incorrectly, then correctly, then incorrectly, then correctly again, all in the span of a couple hours. You cannot make this stuff up. The only thing that makes sense about it is that there's an emotional component to trading that makes it hard for people to think straight, even up here. Let me tell you something. Micron remains a buy. Now, we see this stuff play out in different uh, ways in in different days, and it always astounds me. So let's take last Thursday. Thursday night, Nordstrom, the department store chain, reported a not-so-hot number. Let's call it like it is. I expected the stock to be down maybe uh, 3 bucks because it had run a bit into the quarter. Now, after reading the release and listening to the conference call, I really said, okay, so maybe it goes to 47 before bouncing a bit. Well, you know what? I mean, no. Instead, it promptly falls from 51 to 45. 45. As if Nordstrom would never come back. Great balance sheet, historically good merchants, and that's what happens. At that price, the Nordstrom family can swoop in, steal a stock at 50 bucks, which is what they wanted to pay not that long ago before a special committee said it wouldn't be fair. It was nuts. It was just nuts. Made worse by the fact that when you get a dramatic decline in a stock right from the get-go, it almost always closes at the absolute low of the day because brokers work large institutional orders and try to get a good average price for their sellers. The best way to ensure that you get a good average price is work the order all order all day and then sell that last part down hard so the stock closes at its low, which is therefore automatically worse than what the customer got on the blended sell order price. It's kind of brilliant, isn't it? Watch it. Watch this. It happens all the time. Now, Nordstrom stock has regained nearly four of those points. It just fell for the wrong reasons. I bet it erases the whole decline soon. What a colossal buying opportunity for those who can resist the panic. The problem is almost no one can. It's just such an emotional and silly market. Now, look, the same thing happened with uh, Kohl's. Remember we visited Kohl's recently? You know, we got this Kohl's cash. I bought a lot of um, uh, Gold Toast stocks. I, I, I got such a, it was a steal. I got a lot of good nice Nike clothes to so work out of them. Anyway, Kohl's reported what looked to be a dramatic upside surprise, one so huge that it sent the stock from 64 to 69. But then on the conference call, management stripped out a one-time pop to its same-store sales because of a friends and family sale. So if you backed out that special item, Kohl's actually same-store sales numbers were at the low end of expectations. In response, the stock went from 69 to 60. Yeah, nine points down. Now it's right back to where it started at 64 and change. It was like the quarter was basically a non-event, which it was. Traders let their emotions rule, though. The stock was sold way too low. And yes, once again, it closed at the low of that session because of the way I just described how brokers work in order to be able to knock the stock down at the end of the day to be able to say, look, I did better than the closing price. Now, I want to distinguish these emotional misvaluations from the ones that we actually do talk about all the time that I don't like. For instance, all day I've been hearing and reading about how Netflix is now almost rivaling the size of Walt Disney. $149 billion versus $153 billion. Oh, by the way, at one point in the session, Netflix actually surpassed Disney's value. To me, this comparison is as fatuous as one drawn by a reporter who famously asked Babe Ruth back in 1930, how is it possible that he made $80,000 a year when President Herbert Hoover was paid just $75,000? His response, what's Hoover got to do with it? Besides, I had a better year than he did. You know Ruth had a point. What does Netflix really have to do with Disney? Not as much as you think. Okay, ostensibly, they're both entertainment companies. That's why they get linked together. But that is not how Wall Street portfolio managers look at it. Disney's treated as traditional entertainment play. 
Netflix is treated in another whole class of its own, the highest growth cohort. Okay, and it, it happens to be in the entertainment business, but it's in the highest growth cohort. The thing is, uh, it's not in the media category. It's just something totally different, wholly different from another company that makes movies. So I want you to think of it like this. Think of Netflix as one of those stocks like Amazon that can only be valued on its future prospects because the growth is so stunning. Now, if the growth runs out or slows down, believe me, that valuation will be crushed far, far more heavily than Disney could ever go down. Of course, in reality, the opposite is occurring, though. Netflix is expanding ever faster into new markets. If you run a fund that only likes the highest growth stocks, you think it deserves a higher uh, capitalization than Disney because it grows much faster. That's how they think. But the skeptics don't, don't misvalue Netflix because they're emotional. They misvalue it because they don't understand this concept of a different cohort from an entertainment company. It's a separate group, people. It's a separate sector. Highest growth company. Here's the bottom line. I say, don't be so quick to question a high-quality stock when management's great, like the management of Fang, for example. It just might be right. But this short-term stuff, it's so wrong so often that it's a wonder we even bother paying attention to it, other than to point out instant anomalies that hopefully, hopefully, you can jump on to get some good entry points. Let's start the questioning with Charles in California. Charles! Hello, Jim. Charles. I would like to ask you about... uh China Mobile Limited, they're China's largest uh, telecommunication company with over 800 million customers, and they're actively pursuing trying to get a 5G network up and running before the major telecom companies, even in the U.S., are trying to. They appear to be a strong and stable company that no one really uh, talks about over here. Do you believe that they would be a good company to invest in for the long haul? Well, you know, the stock's been unchanged for about seven years. It did have a very big spike up, but that spike was then repealed. I do not care for this company. And I will reiterate that I like Alibaba, I like Baidu, and I like Baozun. And those are my three for three in China. And I will probably reject everything else. And I've done a lot of work on the stocks over there. I don't like China Mobile. Let's go to Sammy in California. Sammy! Hi, Jim. With the line's meteoric rise in the past 12 months, how do you think the expiration of key patents that have previously insulated them from their competitors will impact its growth prospects going well, forward? Look, they just had or- a gigantic analyst meeting. Everybody loved it. And this question was addressed and answered repeatedly. And the buyers came away and took the stock up even further because it looks like that the business is a little more unassailable than you just made it out to be. But I like being critical. That was good to be critical. Let's go to Mary Beth in Ohio. Mary Beth. Hey, booyah, Jim from the Queen City. Long-time listener, Action Alert Plus member, and first-time caller. Excellent. Jim, I want to thank you and your staff for your logical insights and sound advice in an illogical world. My question True. concerns <laughs> my question concerns Abby. They have a tender offer to purchase up to 7.5 billion shares at a minimum price of $99 a share, maximum $114 a share. It had been bouncing around 106, and today it was down to 102. Right. What do you think? Should I tender my stock to the offering or hold, hoping? Mary Beth, I'm actually going to tell you to hold. Now it was it was downgraded from conviction buy to buy at Goldman, and the Goldman analysis is very good. But Abvi is excellent. Thank you for being a member of the ActionAlertsPlus.com club. And uh, you know we own Abbott, which I like a little more than Abvi. But I want you to hold on to your Abbey because I think they are doing so well. I was surprised that that conviction by the buy downgrade hurt it so badly. That seemed wrong to me. All right, don't be so short-sighted, people. Longer-term upward stock trajectories are often correct when management is great. Oh, man, money tonight. 
Few things are certain on Wall Street, except, of course, death and taxes. So how is Intuit faring? I'm going to talk to the CEO after earnings. Then a company capitalizing on trends taking place in the field. Your phone, and maybe even your girl, your garage. I've alerted it, it to you once before, but I'm going to tell you if this play is still good to go. Plus, it's a company that's focused on the future of food, and it just earned a spot on CNBC's six annual Disruptor 50 last. Don't miss my exclusive with the CEO of Indigo Agriculture. You'll want to buy it, but you can't. It's private. Stick with Kramer. Don't miss a second of Mad Money. Follow at Jim Kramer on Twitter. Have a question? Tweet Kramer. Hashtag Mad Tweets. Send Jim an email to madmoney at CNBC.com or give us a call at 1 800 743 CNBC. Miss something? Head to madmoney.cnbc.com. like a stock that steadily works its way higher year after year after year without making much fuss. Take Intuit, I-N-T-U, the parent company of TurboTax and QuickBooks and Mint, the latter being a personal finance app. This kind of software for bookkeeping and filing your taxes has been growing steadily for ages as part of the digitization of everything. No wonder the company keeps reporting strong results and its stock just keeps climbing. Five years ago, Intuit was trading at $60. Now it's at $197. It's up over 25% year-to-date on top of nearly 40% in 2017. Not bad for virtual accountant. And Intuit continues to deliver. The company reported again last night and gave us a nice top and bottom line beat. I'm getting spoiled here with management also raising their full-year revenue. Revenue guidance. At this point, the only real question is whether the stock has run too much or whether it's got more ahead. So let's check in with Brad Smith. He's the chairman and CEO of Intuit. Get a better sense of the quarter and where his company's headed. Mr. Smith, welcome back to Man Money. Hey, Jim. Thanks for having me back. Well, Brad, you did it again, except for this one may have been very special. You had some incredible accelerated revenue growth. What were some of the components that really shined in your eye from, from your point of view? Well, thank you, Jim. First of all, I do think this was very special. The team did a great job this year. The strength was across the company. We saw 15% revenue growth in our consumer business. We saw 16% revenue growth in our small business and self-employed. But the real breakout star was our consumer tax business. This was a crazy year in tax. You know, the government passed the tax legislation late. The IRS opened up for business late. As a result, we had to get our product ready, but they got out there, they produced a killer product, we picked up market share, we grew the category, and we delivered results that were 15% revenue growth versus guidance of 7 to 9%. So it was a really good year for our tax business. Well, we got to talk about that because there were people on the conference call who were kind of in disbelief. Some, I felt, kind of thought, well, hold it. They knew it was going to be about 10, 11, and they just gave us low guidance. But this was actual organic demand, Correct. It sure was. In fact, we saw an opportunity to take additional share in the do-it-yourself space, which is where TurboTax has historically competed. But this year, we launched TurboTax Live, the ability for those tens of millions of people who have a nagging question in the back of their mind to basically touch a screen and get access to a tax pro and have that tax pro show up at their convenience. And we saw TurboTax Live accelerate our category growth and actually triple our average revenue per customer for that particular product. 
Now, there was a, a, a skein of thought which said, well, you know what? Next year, it's going to be easier. People are going to be doing some standard deductions. They won't need you as much. But you parried that by talking about another product, right? Yes, that's right. That is TurboTax Live. And the reality is, in the U.S., about 155 million people file taxes. 90 million of them go to a tax store or a CPA. And with tax simplification, more of them are now going to have confidence that maybe they can file their taxes on their own at a much lower cost. And now that we introduced TurboTax Live, they don't have to be worried about being alone. They can touch a screen, have a CPA come right into the software and help them through the tax return. So we think this is going to be a huge catalyst for the category and for our company. You talk about the idea that there are still people who do spreadsheets manually. There are still some people who use a shoebox. And there are people who actually put paper, uh, put pen to paper. How many people are really still left to do that? Over 40% around the globe, small businesses still rely on paper receipts. They use spreadsheets, shoeboxes, anything they can do to try to get that out of the way so they can get back to doing what they love to do, which is running their business and serving their clients. So it's a huge opportunity for us. Now, the, this number, the three, this uh, QuickBooks Online, I mean, it's a staggering game that you had. How do people know about this? How did people even, I mean, uh, uh, the accountants must all be working for you, I have to feel. Well, I think we work for the accountants, but the truth is, it's really hard when an accountant receives a shoebox and the small business says, sort this out for me. So the accountants are one of our absolute best ways of getting the word out on QuickBooks Online. But also other small business owners recommend it to other small business owners because they'll say, how do you deal with this stuff? I don't want to focus on paying bills or sending invoices. I simply want to build this product or deliver this service. So the way people learn about this product is word of mouth from other small businesses, from accountants, or they go online and do a Google search and they find our product at the top of the category. Well, I can tell you as a, a customer, uh, even I can figure it out, which says something, because this isn't easy to do. Brad Smith is president and CEO of Intuit. Congratulations, sir, on a great quarter. Thank you, Jim. This stock goes higher. Brad Smith knows what he's doing. Mad Money's back in the room. Coming up. The next frontier of innovation is happening down on the farm. Is Indigo Agriculture the link in the food chain that farmers need to succeed? It's the only way to fundamentally change the economics for the farmer. Kramer is hungry to find out when Mad Money returns. is going on with the lithium stocks. For those of you who don't remember, uh, for the last few years, anything with lithium exposure was red hot because we use so much of the stuff to make batteries, especially for electric cars that require really fast quality quantities of the stuff. For example, in January of last year, I started recommending this stock called FMC, the old Food Machinery Corp. That's where the name came from. It's a chemical company with a lot of agricultural exposure that also has a booming lithium division. At the time, the stock was at $58. By the end of 2017, it involved in 94 bucks. Yet when the calendar turned to 2018, FMC quickly went into free fall, along with its closest competitor, Albemarle. In the first three months of the year, the stock lost 19% of its value. Albemarle was even worse. It was down 27%. The crazy thing is that nearly every other commodity play was catching fire. Now, though, FMC has made a stunning comeback. Since the beginning of April, the stock has recouped nearly all of its earlier losses, bouncing back to $88 as of today. It's like a darn seesaw. 
Given this vertigo-inducing action, I think it's time to revisit FMC and explain exactly what went on here. Because at the end of the day, this is still a terrific story. And I like it even more after today's sell-off, where it got hit particularly hard. It's down two bucks. But first, let me give you some background. FMC has not one but two major divisions. Most of their sales come from agriculture. They make crop protection products like pesticides. At the same time, the company has a small but fast-growing lithium business where they make the kinds of compounds you find in rechargeable batteries. Think pretty much any rechargeable device, cell phones, laptops, and they also make uh, batteries for the uh, red-hot electric car business. The great thing about hybrids and electric vehicles is that they use tons and tons of lithium. I love this comparison, just to keep it in mind. Standard laptop needs about an ounce of lithium, whereas a high-quality electric car might require a hundred pounds of it. For the lithium business, every Tesla that gets sold is worth about 1,600 laptops. And that's just the kicker here. Years ago, FMC sold its old commodity chemical business to focus on more proprietary products like they carry much higher margins. Then they made a series of acquisitions to build up their agricultural business. Last year, the company struck a landmark deal for them with DuPont. FMC got the part of DuPont's crop protection biz that they had to sell to get regulatory approval for the Dow Chemical merger. And FMC gave them $1.2 billion along with their health and nutrition division. I love these kinds of forced sales situations. FMC got a terrific portfolio of insecticides and herbicides along with a promising research and development pipeline, all for much less than they were, uh, than, frankly, they would ever had to pay if it weren't for the government. And that's one of the main reasons the stock caught fire last year in addition to this lithium biz. So what went wrong earlier this year when the whole lithium group got poleaxed? While most commodities roared higher in the first quarter, everything lithium-related was getting killed. What makes this especially crazy is that agriculture was on fire, and FMC is roughly 85% ag. Yet the 15% of the company was lithium? That was actually enough to weigh the whole stock down. Can you believe that? All right, so let's go over what happened with lithium. There's an alpha called Sociedad Chimica. That's Q-U-I-M-I-C-A, Chimica. That's a Chilean miner that's the world's largest source of raw lithium. It struck a deal with its primary regulator in January, and that deal requires them to expand production. When you increase supply, that puts downward pressure on pricing. Over the next four days, FMC lost 8% of its value. Even as many analysts tried to explain that this was no big deal. Frank Mitch, our favorite, the excellent chemicals analyst from Wells Fargo, describes it as, and I remember this quote, so I gave it to you, I'm giving it to you, de minimis, negligible, whatever euphemism you want to use for small. But the market wasn't having anything of it. Investors had turned so hostile on lithium that when FMC reported mid-February, delivering a small top-line miss with a solid earnings beat and very strong guidance, the stock immediately got hit. It, it, fell, eight, it fell 4%, even as it had already been crushed going into the quarter. That's right down another 4% from already being down a lot. The next late down came at the end of February, when Morgan Stanley published a report arguing that lithium prices could fall by a staggering 45 percent by 2021. The problem? They don't think the demand for electric vehicles will grow fast enough to offset the new supply that's coming out of Chile. In fact, they see a flood of new supply coming and believe 2018 will be the peak in terms of pricing. Finally, over the course of March, the stock got crushed yet again for a variety of reasons. General market weakness, global trade tensions, and weakness at Tesla, which buys lots and lots of lithium. From its peak in January to its 12th in late March, FMC lost a staggering 26% of its value. I know a lot of people freaked out down there, and there was just panic selling. A lot of like what I talked about at the top of the show, just panic. Since then, the stock has snapped right back, and a big part of that is because it never should have been so low in the first place. Even if the bears 
are right about lithium. This is still merely 15% of the business. And FMC is planning to spin off its lithium division later this year when a stock is down 26% because of fears about just 15% of the company. You know the market is overreacting. People are freaking out over lithium and forgetting that FMC is mainly a really good crop protection company. Well, on March 29th, FMC had set the record straight. The company provided an update to the first quarter and full-year guidance. Basically, the quarter was going so well, they had to raise their forecasts. In particular, the agricultural business is seeing strong demand, although lithium remains red hot, too. The stock ignited on the news, and it hasn't looked back since, at least not until the last few days. When the company actually reported the first quarter results three weeks ago, the numbers were even better than the earlier forecast. Much, much better. The company delivered a monster 24-cent earnings beat off of a $1.60 basis. And that wasn't even the most extraordinary part. FMC dramatically raised its full-year guidance and gave a greater forecast for the next quarter. What more could you want? So the stock exploded higher yet again, right up until the last few days. Uh, FMC's now slipped a bit more than four bucks from its recent high. Why? Because it has to do with macro worries uh, caused by, say, the cancellation of the North Korea summit. Maybe it's because the Chinese lithium producer bought a 24% stake in Society Day Chemical last week. Although even viewing that as a negative is kind of a stretch. But I'm glad FMC's getting hit here because you're getting a chance to buy a red-hot stock into weakness just in case you missed the incredible buying opportunity in March. Remember, even uh, after its recent run, FMC is still down roughly 10 percent from its all-time high in January, despite the fact that the earnings looked much, much better than they did back when it hit that high. In fact, as the analysts have been forced to raise their estimates, FMC now looks darn cheap. It's one of the least expensive stocks in both the agricultural space, which is very popular, and the lithium space. Okay, that's cool a bit, but selling for just 13 times next year's earnings estimates. I find that, frankly, lunacy. I mean, it's got a 15% long-term growth rate. If you can buy it for 13.1 times earnings with a 15% growth rate, that's called a steal. The bottom line, it was just crazy that FMC sold off so hard in the first quarter. I think the lithium fears were overblown, but more importantly, this is a crop protection company with a lithium kicker. The tail was wagging the dog. I like FMC here. But honestly, I hope people freak out about new lithium supply again, and you get another chance to pick this thing up right into some serious, unjustified weakness. Joe in New York. Joe! Jim, how's it going? My question is on LAC, Lithium America. I like their joint partnership with SQM. And I like how they have their lithium mine here in the home of the United States in Nevada. I bought some shares for myself. I'm only 23 years old. I'm totally bullish on the whole lithium play. Am I wasting my time? What do you think? Well, I've got to tell you, if you're really, really bullish about lithium, you should be owning Sociedad Chemica. That's okay. It's not in the United States. It's in Chile. Um, but otherwise, I would, think, I would suggest that you own the spinoff of FMC, when that spinoff occurs, these both of those are much more, um, let's say, rigorous producers of lithium than Lithium America's Corp. It doesn't matter that you're young. I'm still going to put you in best of breed. Calvin in New Jersey. Calvin. Hey, Patrick, Jim. How are you doing? I am doing well. How about you? Oh, excellent. Excellent. My question is about one of the largest electrical utility companies trading right now. As I understand it, PPL Corp is trading with a P.E. of 13.9, paying a 6% dividend, and has reported great Q1 numbers, but it's trading off of its all-time lows 
And I think it's based off of this administration's reform tax laws. Well, Kevin, I mean, what matters more is that that is now a growth area. That I'm, I used to be a customer then. And PPL yields six, as you say. And you know what that means? Ah. I'm a buyer. Let's go to Stephen in Michigan. Stephen! How you doing, Jim? I Have am a great doing well. How about you? I'm a tax bully in Hillsdale, Michigan, home okay. of Hillsdale College. There you go. Hey, Jim, uh, on October 13th show, you recommended LKQ, an auto parts company that was based in Chicago with operations in Europe and the U.S. Ten days later, they bought Warren, which is a great Michigan connection. They do their research here. And the last quarter, they had a misdemeanor earnings report, by, and the stock dropped over 20% from the prior day, from 37.5 to below 29 I guess I'm looking at where I should hold it. Oh, I would. No, we think this is very. I mean, it missed by a darn. I mean, it missed by nothing. I mean, I was shocked to see how much hot money there was in this thing. It is just a very solid company. It should not have been hit the way it was. And I'm sticking by it. All right. Is your portfolio looking for a spark? FMC got it down for science. Listen to this thing. Itself was way overblown. And then it's been down for the last couple days. Just like I said at the top of the show, when you get hits like this, you got to pull the trigger. You got to buy. All right, much more mad money ahead, including a company that's challenging Monsanto. It's a revolution that's coming to your kitchen table, which is why Indigo Agriculture is on CNBC's sixth annual disruptive list. You want to buy the stock, but it's not public. Then, with headlines about Trump and North Korea dominating the tape today, you may have missed the fact that interest rates have been ticking down in this market. No one's talking about it. I'll tell you what it means for your money. And all your calls are rapid fire in tonight's edition of the Lightning Round. So stick with Kramer. Tomorrow, kick off the trading day with Squawk on the Street. Live from Post 9 at the NYSE. You got to see Quiet Place this weekend. I'm buying tickets. I'm not going to see the Quiet Place. That, that's because it's Viacom. He won't go because it's Paramount. It's scary. No, because it's scary. I don't oh, want to go. Oh, I it was because you don't like Paramount. It all starts at 9 a.m. Eastern. To better feed the world, farmers are embracing an appetite for innovation. With technology to harness nature and an ambition to help growers, will the future of food be written in indigo? This week, CNBC rolled out its sixth annual Disruptor 50 list of innovative private companies that are transforming their respective industries. Some of our best investment ideas are alumni of this prestigious list. You know we've been recommending Spotify and Dropbox. Tonight, I want to tell you about number 18 on this year's list, and I'm pretty excited about it. It's called Indigo Agriculture. While there are a bunch of publicly traded companies that have been transforming the business of farming by genetically modifying seeds, Indigo takes a different approach. The company focuses on the microbes that have evolved alongside plants for millions of years. At the moment, Indigo goes focus on corn, wheat, soybeans, rice, and cotton. The, their microbe-based seed treatments can make crops that are more resistant to drought or that require less fertilizer. It's an intriguing approach to agricultural technology. So let's take a closer look with David Perry, the CEO of Indigo Agriculture. Learn more about what his company's doing and what it means for the industry. Mr. Perry, welcome to Mad Money. Good to see you, sir. Thank Pleasure you for coming here. on. Here Thank you go. You, Thank you. Okay, so I think there'll be people who say, well, wait a second. I mean, these big seed companies, they've been doing, they've been modifying genetics for a long time. And what has this guy got? But it's actually quite a different approach, isn't it? It's completely different, Jim. Okay. Um, modern agriculture is really built on technologies that were created decades ago. Synthetic fertilizer, synthetic chemicals, GMOs, and plant breeding. 
we're taking an entirely new approach. I think it's an opportunity to see a, a revolution in agriculture using naturally discovered microbes to improve yields of plants and also to protect them against pests and insects so we can reduce the amount of fertilizer used and the amount of agricultural chemicals used. Now, the goal is not necessarily to double the yield, but you're mm -hmm. making these very nice gains that are obviously, mm -hmm. for a farmer, uh, something that yields a great profit for them. Yeah, we're seeing 10 to 15% yield gains. And, you know, we're only a four-year-old company. This right. is going to get better and better. But the average farmer makes less than 10% margin. So if you double their yield, or sorry, if you increase their yield by 10 or 15%, you're doubling their profitability. So it's a significant impact. For now, their I like the analogy of something that a lot of people can understand. You could take a pill that is synthetically made that maybe makes your stomach uh, handle food better, or you can take yeah. probiotics. Exactly. Now, I'm a probiotic guy because I don't want to take the synthetic. It, that's yeah. kind of what you're doing with the genes here, right? It, it's exactly right. So... Plants and microbes evolved over 200 million years together. They had a symbiotic relationship, and the microbes had an incentive to protect those plants against water stress or bugs or, or disease. All we're doing is identifying the, the cures that already exist in nature, adding them back to plants, and the result is healthier plants that yield more and need less intervention. Uh, I'm glad what you said earlier, which is the idea that we're using old technology for the synthetics. The truth mm -hmm. is, is you're using the equivalent of big data here. You've yes. got a, a sophisticated level of technology that really didn't exist back then. Right? It's true. I, while what we do is simple in concept, right. it's really difficult to implement because there may be a trillion microbes that could benefit plants. And if you have to test every one of them, that would be an infinitely long set of experiments. So the combination of DNA sequencing and then big data and machine right. learning allows us to predict which microbes might help and greatly simplifies the process. All right, I grew up on Green Giant and on Dole, all right? <laughs> so then when we started doing what Monsanto was doing with uh, genetically modified, well, that was better than what we were having. <laughs> How, but my kids can't stand it. They're millennials. How will you be able to identify to millennials that this is an indigo-based product and not what the other guy has? Because they don't want the, they eat almost none of this stuff for yeah. fear that it's uh, synthetic. Well, that, that's a great question. So one of the problems with the existing system is that most farmers take their output and put it into silos or uh, collection points with all their neighbors. And in that system, it's impossible to get paid for growing things with higher quality right. or growing things more sustainably. So part of what Indigo does is connects the farmer directly with the buyer and coordinates the logistics between that. So we can preserve the identity of that crop all the way to the, the food company and eventually to the consumer. See, I think that's really important. I mean, and I wish it was more accentuated in, in mm -hmm. the way that you know, everyone's got a shorthand. But to me, your partnership with the farmers yeah. and the notion of the integrity of the product is something yeah. that you guys are really zeroing in on. Yeah, it's the, it's the only way to fundamentally change the economics right. for the farmer. As long as they're producing a commodity, they're going to be competing with low-cost producers all over the world. But if we start allowing them to to differentiate their products, make them value-added based on quality and sustainability, better for the farmer, better for the consumer. One last question. Have you had a chance to uh, talk with or meet Steve Easterbrook from McDonald's? I have not. You know, you have to okay. because he cares passionately about this. Excellent. He's not known for this, 
but he wants uh -huh. to change the world's food chain. It's an imperative for him. He can't do it overnight because it would wreck the world's food chain. Yeah. But you sh I'll make the introduction. That's how important this is. Your private company, I can get away with. Yeah. If you're public, I'd say, yeah. hey, you're on your own. All right, that's David Perry, CEO of Indigo Agriculture. This is what we need more of, okay? This is what has to happen to the food chain. We have money's back after the break. Thank you, Jim. It is time! It's time for the lightning the lightning round is over. Are you ready, Skate? Daddy, it's time for the lightning round. Cameras are mine. Start with Phil in South Dakota. Phil! Booyah, Kramer! Booyah! Okay, I've been watching a long, long time. Okay. Um, And my stock is TOT. Hotel. But he got there like it's a da -da. <laughs> All right, now here's the problem with Total. Uh, it's okay. It's not great. It's not bad. But, you know, it yields 5%. It's got a decent growth portfolio. portfolio. Uh, I'll, I'll tell you this. If it comes down a couple, I'll give it my blessing. Let's go to John in Texas. John. Big state of Texas. Booyah to you, Dr. Kramer. Good to have Thanks you on the show. Thanks for taking the call. First time, long time. All right. My stock is Roku. I bought it pre-earnings a couple of weeks ago at about 31. It's been floating around a little bit. What do you think it's going to do uh, moving forward? You know what? I, I actually thought that Amazon, which we own for uh, the Chapel Trust, we followed ActionAlertsPlus.com club. Uh, I thought that Amazon was going to hurt them more than they have. My bad. Roku's a good company. I welcome on the show. Let's go to Tom in New York. Tom. Hey, Jim. I love your show. Thank You're you. You're the best. Thank you. I've been watching about two years, and I'm making great money, and I've not been a pig. Excellent. So so two months ago, you had a COO on of a company, and you were so positive about them. And I bought some, and they've dropped, and I bought some more, and they've dropped some more. What's going on with GTT? Nothing. I mean, it, 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 it's doing very well. I mean, honestly, I, I mean, I think it's doing incredibly well. I'm sorry that it went down so much after he was on, but uh, they've got that low infrastructure telecommunications model that's terrific. That's probably one of those stocks just going down for incorrect reasons. I'm not kidding. I, I like that business very much. Let's go to Bennett in Maryland. Bennett. Booyah, Jim. Thanks for taking my call. Of course, Bennett. Want to get your thoughts on Caesars Entertainment, CDR. I was surprised to see it. J.P. Morgan recommended that stock, and they've got the best analysts in the group. I've always felt the balance sheet was bad, but maybe they got some optionality. Uh, you know what? I, I like MGM. MGM's been stalled lately. It's Caesars, I can't pull the trigger because of that balance sheet, but I guess there's some mojo there. Let's go to Bill in Florida. Bill. Hey, Jim. Yes, this is Bill. Okay. Listen, uh, Red Robin, RRGB, reported their earnings yesterday, and according to the street, they missed their numbers. The stock dropped down to over 10 points. What's your position on I, I Red didn't Robin? like the cops call at all. I mean, I didn't like the fact that, like, in the second paragraph of the whole darn thing, the CEO said we had kind of a mixed bag. Mixed bag, for heaven's sake. I got stocks sell, that sell, have, sell, like, sell, great sell, numbers. Sell, 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 sell. I don't want to own a stock that's a mixed bag. Let's go to Brian in New Jersey. Brian. Hi, Jim. Really great to talk to you. Oh, good to have uh, you on the show. I want to know what you think about Tech Center Group Holdings, ticker symbol TGH. They're I one have of the lost largest. more money historically recommending intermodal companies than I have in anything else. Sell, sell, sell. So the answer is... Don't buy. Don't buy. Don't buy. Don't buy. I'm not don't done. Buy. I'm going to Scott in Florida. Scott. 
Hey, Jim, you run a great show, and uh, thank thanks you. so much for all you do to educate. Thank you. Hey, uh, my question for you is, uh, what are your thoughts on Camping World Holdings? You know, ever since we saw the slowdown in the, in the actual, uh, you know, the Thors and the Winnebago's, it's really hurt Camping World stock. And so, therefore, I, I think that Marcus should come on the show and tell us uh, why we should buy the stock. Because, uh, you know, Thor had some inventory issues. Uh, that is, this is just one big ripple. They all trade together. I'd love to hear why they shouldn't trade together. Because right now, I don't understand uh, why it's any different from the others. I really don't. Let's go to Dennis in South Carolina. Dennis. Hey, Jim. How you doing? All right. How about you? Not too bad. This is Dennis from the wonderful state of South Carolina. Beautiful state. Where a relationship with God and Jesus is more valuable than money. There you I go. I would, would like Good to uh, get your information on uh, CVR refining. Symbol CVR. Good. Thank Good. You. But you know what? Marathon Pete is ours. That's the one we like the most. It's been the biggest winner. I can't judge. You know, who am I to judge uh, the, the, the stock better than that one? It's hard to, hard, hard to find. And that, ladies and gentlemen, conclusion of the Lightning Round. The Lightning Round is sponsored by TD Ameritrade. Has anyone noticed that interest rates have been st- let's say, steadily ticking down of late? After all the hand-wringing about how rising rates were going to crush the stock market, you think there would be some similar commentary about how lower rates are good news for stocks. I mean, the yield in the 10 years back below 3%, the level where everybody panicked. I think it may even go to as low as 275. Why are rates falling? Yesterday, we got the Fed minutes from the May meeting and the Steam body agreed that inflation may be transitory and not embedded. If inflation is temporary, people, there's much less need for the Fed to tighten aggressively. So let's go through the reasons why this is. First, President Trump, for example, grabs headlines, right? Talk about a national defense law as a way to restrict auto imports last night and this morning. Uh, they're often subsidized, I have to admit. And those do hurt the profits of U.S. automakers and therefore hurt the U.S. automakers' ability to be able to hire. I found his logic spurious. But I understand it because we're now seeing cars come down in price thanks to a surge in first quarter imports. While there may be that may be bad for GM and Ford, the glut has turned very deflationary. That's a nice check on runaway inflation. Second, the Saudis and the Russians are talking right now about scrapping the caps in oil production that they had put into place last year to stabilize crude. Those caps, plus a decline in drilling by several key oil producing nations, have caused the price of oil to soar. The prospect of oil rolling over because the Saudis and Russians boost production is also incredibly deflationary. That, too, should send the yields lower. Remember, plastic, one of the key escalating raw components uh, for all consumer packaged goods companies, is priced off of oil. So it would go down, too, helping the margins of the producers, but also bring down prices for you. What else would explain the bond rally? The World Trade Organization's dispute settlement board could soon rule against the U.S. when it comes to the duties our government slapped on Canadian lumber. Two months ago, the Canadians got approval for two different 
from panels looking to the tariffs that caused our lumber prices to skyrocket more than 30% record levels. The last few days, to me, it felt very peakish, meaning that lumber's had a parabolic spike of unsustainable proportions, and I think it's about to be repealed. Watch the stock of Weyerhaeuser, WY, as its trajectory will tell the tale. Lumber has added $7,000 to the average price of a home because of these tariffs. A pro-Canada ta- uh, ruling would be a big win for the anti-inflation nieces. By the way, Weyerhaeuser stock not able to take out its high tells me that maybe we've seen the peak in lumber. We keep hearing about escalating freight costs, right? But a lot of that has to do with the railroads not being ready for the spike in demand. If you consider that Union Pacific just pulled 650 locomotives out of storage and CXS is ramping up for more traffic, you can see a peak in transportation costs too, and no one's talking about that. Now, it's not like the truckers are sitting still either. They are struggling to find drivers. It's a major bottleneck. But if they pay bonuses like Union Pacific is doing to find workers to $10,000 to $25,000 a pop, the shortage will be alleviated and freight costs will come down. Immigration uh, would help too, but I... This isn't exactly an immigration-friendly administration. How about the aluminum and steel tariffs, the big reasons for escalating can prices? Now, we're not going to see a decline anytime soon here, particularly uh, with the latter, because we don't even make enough aluminum in this country. That part of the, of the tariff was really ill-considered. Uh, but uh, when we have to import most of the aluminum anyway, I mean, it's basically just a tax. But steel giant Nucor is taking advantage of the higher prices by building new plants and running its factories in overdrive. Steel could peak if the exporters to this country keep shipping here despite the tariffs. You know why they might? Because their cost of capital is often incredibly low thanks to state subsidies, hence why we have to have the tariffs. Hasn't happened yet, though. Still, let's not forget that what comes up can also come down. Many industries are just beginning to train unemployed workers in order to try to keep their labor costs in line. Because of mandated minimum wages and the scarcity of all sorts of workers with key skill sets, it is a real issue. But it's not so real as to keep driving up interest rates from here. So don't stop fretting about inflation. I like you to be skeptical. But understand, barring endless tariffs by the president, our current bout of inflation is far from permanent. Oh, and the decline in rates is usually positive for the stock market, something we sometimes forget on a down day like today. Stick with Craven. Dan Schulman from PayPal had a fantastic analyst day today, and the stock is not up enough. That's my judgment. It was dramatically higher at one point. I like to say there's always a bull market somewhere. I promise I'll find it just for you right here on Made Money. I'm Jim Cramer, and I will see you tomorrow. I want people to feel like they just learned something. We have journalists in the far corners of the universe. I can't wait to get all of those resources under one hour-long newscast where we can deliver the facts of the day clearly and concisely in context and with perspective and tell people what's happening, what it all means. Get the truth, not the spin. The News with Shepard Smith. Subscribe to the podcast today.